Good day, dear listeners. Steve Frieda here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And today's guest here with me is Jeff Berkowitz, the founder and CEO of Delve LLC, which is a competitive intelligence and risk advisory firm that helps fortune companies, industry associations, political campaigns, and advocacy and educational groups mitigate political and reputational risks. Jeff managed messaging and research operations for the White House, several major political campaigns, the Republican National Committee, and the U.S. Department of State before forming Delve. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you. It's definitely very interesting background that you have. And and I'm, I'm wondering how did you, with all this professional background, work for the White House and political parties and fortune companies, how do you end up becoming an entrepreneur? <laughs> By accident and the, the therapy didn't work. So <laughs> I had a great career in politics and government. And after my last job, uh, a little over 11 years ago, didn't really have a plan for what was next, but uh, folks started approaching me. They needed research and I was happy to take money until I, their money until I figured out what was next. And, and little did I know that was really the, the clients preceding the firm. And, and what we realized over time was the kind of research and analysis that we take for granted in political campaigns and running government operations, there really wasn't anyone built to do that for corporate public affairs and government relations professionals and to provide them with the kind of insights they needed to help uh, their CEOs, their C-suites, their, their management teams and investors navigate political and reputational risks and and understand what those are, how to avoid them. And so no one was doing that. So we kind of swam into that blue ocean, planted a flag and said, you, if you're going to engage in public affairs and in today's environment, most companies don't get a choice of whether they will or not, uh, you're going to need an information advantage from understanding who your stakeholders are and what they're up to and and how they align or don't align with your own uh, business and policy objectives. Wow. Okay. That's, that's very uh, intriguing. And I want to really dig deep into that with you. But before I do that, I'd like to ask you whether in the process of building Delve, were you inspired by any business blueprints or business frameworks or, you know, management blueprints, I call them, that you found in a book or learned somewhere that you implemented partially or fully in your business? Yeah, I mean, if there's a book about how to run a business, I've probably read it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a researcher at heart. And I certainly, once I kind of realized, you know what, this is a business, this is something, and I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know, okay, well, it's easy enough to take clients' monies, but then once you start adding employees, you start adding structure, you start scaling. You know, when we officially launched, um, you know, we went from four and a half employees to more than 12 employees in less than a year and, and while we were tripling revenue. So if you don't have some sort of a structure and organization to that, you're, you know, that's not going to be sustainable. And, you know, so I read a lot of books, you know, I read Scaling Up, I read Traction, you know, a lot of these books and, and took a lot away from, from them. You know, certainly a lot of those all kind of draw from Jim Collins and and good to great and the principles that he identified for companies that can sustainably grow. Probably the the author that most in sort of leadership business thinker that struck me the most and that we found the most helpful is Patrick Lencioni. Uh, You know, he has a lot of great books. You know, the advantage kind of 
brings all of his other books together, his structure around not just the high level theory of how do you strategy, how do you come up with a strategy, right? How do you get that rallying cry to get the whole team aligned? But then what, how do you then build that down into the organization? How do you communicate with each other? How do you maintain consistent rhythms, make sure that you're living a set of values that everyone, you know, is buying into and everybody knows where the company is going and what role they play in it. You know, his, the structures he puts in place, I think were most useful for us in, in getting to where we have. Yes. I mean, ultimately, uh, Patrick Lencioni, he always writes about people and how people behave and how people are motivated and a professional service firm like yours is all about people, right? It's it's your experts and your clients as well. Um, it's all individual situations and you have to read between the lines. So what are some of the concepts that you are using on a regular basis in uh, in Delve? Sure. So we, you know, we use, he has a, one of his great books is, is around preventing silos and internal politics. One of the big things that drove me to, to start Delve is my last job uh, at a national political organization. There was a lot more internal politics than there was external politics going on. There was a lot of this infighting. I'm like, but this is a mission-driven organization. Why are we fighting with each other? We're supposed to be fighting you know, for this political cause. And I didn't want to work in an organization that was like that. I wanted to build an organization that had a stable base where everybody understood what our purpose was, what was our mission, where we were going, and, and we're excited about that and working together in a way that, you know, everybody enjoyed showing up to work instead of, I don't want to have to, you know, deal with Bill because Bill's mean to me and I don't want to fight with Susie because she's always wrong about these things. We're all here for the same reason. And so I found that book really interesting because it provides that structure of, you know, what's your thematic goal for, for the next, you know, six months, 12 months, what's that most important thing that you've got to do as a business to, to reach those long-term goals that you have. And for us, you know, our long-term goal, our BHAG, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal is to make competitive intelligence an expected component of any successful public affairs operation. If you're going to engage in using policy apparatus to uh, move towards your business goals, you've got to have a po- effective public affairs operation. And if you're not making that operation smart through insights like the kind that we offer, you're going to fail. And so we've been on this mission to convince people that that's the case. And we've figured out some of the base camps along the way of what tells us whether we're on that road or not. And so we look at, okay, so if that's the long-term vision, what do we need to get done now in the business that's most important? And then you think about sort of what are the objectives within that that you need to achieve to get to to that goal, to meet that thematic goal. So we've had, you know, Rallying cry changes. Um, you know, our, our rallying cry this year has really been about leadership development. You know, it can't, especially when it comes to professional services firm, they tend to be very principle driven. But that means that a lot is riding on the principal shoulders. And we really want to grow the rest of our leadership team to make sure that things can happen in the business that don't rely on, on me being directly involved in it and, and making sure clients can trust them and, and they know how to handle things without you know, me having to be involved in it. So a lot of our rallying cries about how do we build that internal infrastructure for growth? Because you can go out and win a bunch of contracts, but then you get 
you know, swamped under uh, that work. And as the principal, I can't be out there getting more new business. And, and you know, the old, the old joke in professional services is you're always three months away from bankruptcy, um, <laughs> right? You know, because, because you get, you win a bunch of work and then you're busy doing it. And then you pick your head up in three months and realize you haven't been out selling. And, and you know, it's, you know, our kind of work doesn't, you know, they can be long lead times to work with those large corporations. So you've got to be talking to them regularly. Yes. And it's, it's hard to scale because you need to bring in people who fit in with your culture, who actually learn what you do, which is complex. So it takes time and, and it's, you cannot blow it up overnight. You need to gradually build it and you need to all the time have work for those people. And that's a tricky, that's a tricky proposition. That's right. But, but I think you, you really hit on something really important, which is you've got to have the kind of people that are going to operate in the way that you want folks in the company to operate. Um, you know, early on, I worked with an executive coach as we were sort of getting ready to officially launch the company. And he said, you know, you should come up with your, your set of core values for the company. And I said, that sounds like a, a worthwhile thing. That's, that's a nice thing to have and to think about. Very quickly after launch, it became incredibly evident that was the most important thing that we did was come up with those, those set of, you know, we have four core values and people who live up to those four things, they do really well here. And they're really successful at Delve people that don't, it's, it, you know, it's not, it's not going to be the right fit. And so finding the right people that fit that mold and understanding what does that mold look like? Hugely important. It's so interesting that you, you talk about this. Obviously I, I totally agree. Uh, it's very important that you identify the core values and you socialize it and you attract the right people who, who leave those core values, who resonate with it. And I've been teaching companies this for many years. And just last week, I had a guest on this podcast, Mark Reclau, who is an author and one of the books that he, he, re, he, he writes, self-help books. And one of the books he written, I started reading over the weekend, it's titled 30 Days. And it talks about your personal core values. And it says that you have to identify your four personal core values. And it says, hmm, so I know my company's core values and I'm a one-person company. But then I thought maybe my personal core values are actually slightly different because it's not about growing the business. And I came up with uh, my four core values and it really made me think. And I, I shot off a note to Mark that, hey, Mark, these are mine. I wonder what yours are. And he just responded to me this morning. He said, Actually, I haven't looked at this since I wrote this book in 2014. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta drink your own champagne. I know, I know. So that's that's really interesting. So even uh, the um, shoemakers uh, walk barefoot uh, a lot of the times. So it's it's really important, really important. Okay, I love this. So Pat Lencioni is definitely uh, really the greatest one. I agree in the realm of motivating people, building great teams, and and building great cultures. So let's switch gears here and let's talk a little bit, little bit about Delve. And you talk about managing political and reputational risks. And, and you know, in the abstract, that's, that's very obvious, but think about it specifically. So what kind of things can arise for a company that can create this kind of political and reputational risks? Can you give, give me a couple of examples? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so... For most of, our, most of our clients are in heavily regulated or highly scrutinized industries. So, you know, so 
you're, you're talking about folks that are dealing with life or death, right? You know, so folks like pharmaceutical and life sciences, energy and infrastructure development firms, you know, financial services and investment uh, firms, just take energy, for example, you know, you're, if you're a traditional energy company, everybody wants to know, you know, what are you doing to do, to do your work in the most sustainable and environmentally responsible way? How are you reducing emissions? How are you navigating the energy transition? How are you being a good steward and neighbor of the communities that you operate in? And that's really, that's something you could ask of a lot of, of almost any kind of company that's going to have a, a footprint in a, a community. What, you know, what are you doing to be a good steward or neighbor? And unfortunately, these days, that's not enough because there are larger political and social issues. And today, CEOs, other business leaders are the, the most trusted and respected leaders of institutions in our society, which means they're getting looked at as the cultural leaders to really tell us the direction, the politicians, nobody trusts the politician, or, you know, everybody only trusts half the politicians, right? And, and no, but then nobody can agree on which half. So they're kind of out the door, you know, other religious institutions, other things have, have had scandals and other issues. So CEOs in a lot of ways are the folks that people are looking to, to, to help lead society to better place. And if your company is not Supporting that, there's going to be inherent risks in that. You know, so that so that's why you're seeing a lot of companies talk about what's our purpose, being mission driven. And all of those things are great, but you can't just talk about it, right? Core values is a great to go back to the core values. You know, Enron, which which went down in a in a fire of, of accounting scandals, one of their core values was integrity. Yeah. Right. You know, so it's not you can't just put it on the wall and say we we stand for integrity. It's got to be the expected behaviors of the company and how you operate mm -hmm. that is consistent with how you talk about who you are and what you are and how you contribute to society. And so that's where you find that intersection of political and reputational risks a lot is, is how do companies talk and how do they operate versus what are the expectations from the communities that they operate. And also sometimes you can do every right, but everything right, but policymakers have their own agendas. Active, you know, activists have their own agendas. If they can use you as a, an example to further their agenda, they're going to do it, whether it's fair to you or not. And so you've got to be ready for it. So when you're talking about managing this risk, then is it about being a good corporate citizen? So you manage the risk by actually improving your behavior or you manage the risk by, I don't know, managing the environment so that your bad behavior is, doesn't become apparent or you can communicate it in a more positive light. So being a good corporate steward is, is the table stakes today. It's not, and it used to be enough. That used to be the expectation. That's just the, end, you know, the price of entry now to being able to, to operate and have what we like to talk about a lot of folks in our business talk about is that social permission to operate, right? So there's going to be formal permitting processes and, and regulate, regulatory expectations, but there's also what does the community expect from you? What do your neighbors expect from you? What does society expect from you? And that's a different level. Um, you've got to be meeting that, but it's not enough you know, today because sometimes you can be doing all of that right, but it's not enough. 
you have to talk about it and engage with those stakeholders. It's, you've got to talk about what you're doing and why it's right. And you also have to defend your interests. You know, there's a lot of companies say that are under uh, you know, a lot of scrutiny that isn't entirely fair. Look at, look at what happens just with um, some of the, the companies that are helping build out the vaccine production and distribution. You know, this is one of the, the largest scale-ups in the history of, of manufacturing. That's not going to, that's all, never going to be done perfectly. But in today's media, everything becomes nefarious. and Nobody in the corporate world gets that benefit of the doubt. So you've got to be out there proactively telling your story. You've got to be proactively knowing who are the important stakeholders to us, right? Why can a Nike put out a sneaker with Colin Kaepernick and get a lot of, you know, more conservative minded consumers upset while another firm can't get away with that and, and continue to be successful and profitable. It's because Nike knows who their important influence or their important stakeholders are. They know who are the consumers that we need to rely on and who are the consumers that actually provide our profit centers, right? They're the people buying the $200 sneakers that think Colin Kaepernick is awesome and a great activist, not the people buying the, you know, $10, you know, sweatpants, you know, in the, the bargain bin. You know, that don't really care whether they have the Nike swoosh on them or not. So they understand their stakeholders, they understand their consumers. You also need to understand how you're, who's regulating you, who's overseeing you. You know, we saw this in Georgia with Delta. You know, Delta is based in Atlanta and they were very outspoken on the recently passed Georgia voting law. But that didn't sit well with the state legislators who decide on their tax breaks and the business environment in which they operate. And I think you're going to see this increasingly as companies move to, you know, red states that have more friendly business regulatory environments uh, and move away from places like California, New York, New Jersey, other places that are more heavily regulated. They're moving into places where the social politics may not be consistent with where their customers, their employees, other folks have expectations for how they're going to operate as a company. They're going to have to think through how, you know, how do you I navigate that? You know, even as you're working in your own community as a business leader, you have to think about how am I representing myself, my family, the company in this community and, you know, how are our employees operating and treating people in the community? Because that can be a big source of, of potential risk for you. If you're, not, if you're not operating in a responsible manner, that's going to get out. If you're not being truthful about how you operate, that's going to get out. So you need to understand some of those vulnerabilities. You also have to understand the other interests that are at stake, right? You know, sometimes it's competing industries that are making arguments you know, through different stakeholders about what is the best way to power our future? And what is the best way to develop this land or not develop this land? You know, what kind of products should, should we be selling? What kind of standards should they meet? You know, all of these things have both a formal regulatory environment as well as a, a social regulatory environment of the expectations of the society and the community. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, so what can you do to help them? Is it just about communication or is it also about substantive changes? Is it strategy changes as well? Is it about uh, shaping the narrative? How, how does that work? So how, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you change the yeah. perception? Let's say Nike wants to promote this shoe with Copernic, who is, who's a, who is a 
controversial figure for you know for certain parts of the society do you just ignore uh, those people or do you actually maybe position that thing as, as something that is not divisive I, sure so yeah the answer is you've got to you've got to make sure that you have the the information you need to make smart decisions before you have to make them because in this day and age you might not have much time to respond you might not know when a crisis is going to hit you might not know when there's going to be a viral moment that you know all of a sudden your social media is exploding and you've got to respond so before that happens you know, you need to know what are our vulnerabilities you know no business model is perfect no business operation is perfect you know people have histories and backgrounds what are those you know make sure that you know what those are and and you're ready to make your case on why you know why why you're doing things a certain way and why that's appropriate or if they're not how you're going to make it right figuring out the the answers to these questions ahead of time is important but also knowing know who your stakeholders are you know, know who are your important consumers who are your important employees who are you who's who are the policymakers that make decisions about how you can operate what kind of regulations are you living under you know what are the political issues that you might have to get drawn in on in a community who are the different community stakeholders you want to work with what if you're saying you have a a particular mission mission or purpose as a company how are you living up to it making sure that you've got all of this understanding lets you then make better decisions when it comes time to go to market with a new product right you know if you're if you're positioning yourself as the sustainable x company you know company within a certain industry you better be ready to talk about how you and your supply chain and your retail and everything else are in fact sustainable because if you're not somebody's going to figure that out and they're going to start exposing it and you're going to have to you're going to have explaining to do yeah that's definitely uh, keep keeping uh, companies honest uh, they cannot say something and do another thing it gets exposed which 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 i guess is a good thing uh, ultimately so what one thing that has struck me uh, reading your website is that you you're not just kind of uh, surveying the field and and giving the real time uh, alerts that something is happening but you actually synthesize that into themes and and trends and you actually interpret it and you help explain the context in the bigger picture of what these things mean can you give me an example of of when you did that and when it really kind of changed the perception or or allowed the your client to see the big picture and the forest for the trees yeah you know I, it's so important because in this day and age you know nobody nobody's wanting for information right everything's a google search away not you know not everything but a lot you know there's still a lot of information that that's hard to find but collection is not the hard part collecting information it's analysis that's the hard part and we find you know the the public affairs government relations corporate communications professionals we work with the general counsels those tend to be who we work with they don't have the time the data sit and marinate with that with all that data and make sense of it and sense making is so important to being able to then make it actionable because you know it's not just here's a pile of information it's really what does this mean and what kind of action do i take from it so when we're doing a vulnerability study of a, you know helping a company understand what are what are its vulnerabilities you know we may not be telling them things they don't know but they may not have realized that if you take this information it can be shaped into this narrative that is not not as complementary as you would think about 
uh, for yourself. Now it may leave out half the story and not be fair and all these other things, but that is a bit, but it, having vulnerabilities that exist, you know, they're going to float out there until there's an inciting incident. And then once, once something happens, that viral moment, people start to dig in more. They start to look at this company and be like, actually, you know, this company, you know, this isn't the first time they've had a, you know, a truck spill over. They actually have a long history of, of safety issues with, you know, with their uh, delivery drivers. Or, you know, what? They, of course they, of course they treated that customer that way. You know, look at their board. They don't have a single person of color. They don't have a single woman. You know, of course they aren't sensitive to some of these cultural, you know, cultural issues. Yeah, so you want to, some of these things like, well, no, we've had the same board for 10 years. Nobody ever complained about it, right? But it, once there's that incident, and that's what we're trying to help people get ahead of, is what, what can you do to be ahead of those vulnerabilities, address them, and take action on them before they become a problem? Because it's a lot easier to do crisis preparation and prevention than it is to do crisis mitigation. Once you've got 10,000 people out there in front of your production facility with signs and, and demanding justice, there's only so much we can do for you. <laughs> that, that reputational damage is going to live on for a long time, and it's going to impact all of your future actions with that community, uh, with other stakeholders, with policymakers, uh, with the court system, with the media. Right, so you can't un you can't undo reputational damage. You can mitigate it. You can try and make it better. You can show how you've improved or addressed those, but that's a long healing process. The ideal state is to never get them. So, is there a short list of top vulnerabilities that the company would have, or is it an infinite way of being exposed? And essentially, if that is the the level is the case, then how do you prepare for? all those unforeseen contingencies? Is it even possible? So I, it's, it's constantly evolving, right? In today's day and age, you know, the first thing that I'm going to look at it, if we're engaged in a company to help them assess vulnerabilities is, what do you say your, your purpose and your mission is? How, how purpose and mission driven are you? Because that's the first lens that, I'm, that consumers and policymakers and everybody are going to evaluate it. How do you live up to the standards you're setting and how are you reaching that and living that mission and purpose. Then, you know, there, there's some standards uh, that our society is setting right now that are, they, that are continuing to evolve. So there's diversity, equity, and inclusion. How are you engaging in that? In meaningful ways, right? It's not enough. I remember for years we've seen, you know, like not to pick on them, but, you know, venture capital and investment funds, you know, announcing, oh, we're going to put, we put together a $10 million fund for women-owned women startups. And I'm like, that sounds cool, 10 million, but actually you're, you're, a, you're spending billions of dollars on investments. That's, that's a drop in the bucket. That's a press release. Yeah. That's not a meaningful amount. People are starting to get catch on to that. You better be making real investments to back what you're saying you're doing about diversity and inclusion and equity. You know, what is what does your workforce look like? And how are you moving it to be more diverse? How are you making sure it's inclusive? Not on the surface, but at, but at that core value level. ESG is another big area, um, you know, environmental sustainability and governance. How do you operate as a company? And how do you engage not just shareholders, but all of your stakeholders? How are you, how are you treating the environment? Um, how are you ensuring that the company, you know, how you operate as a company 
is sustainable. That's why you're seeing a lot of companies move you know, towards more sustainable uh, components. I also think it's, you know, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword because a lot of the scrutiny is a zero-sum game. It's, it's you cannot have any of these things. But there's always a second, you know, there, there's, it's not like companies decide to use plastic because, you know, they just don't care about the earth. They use plastic because in a lot of cases, it's the safest, most responsible way to do that packaging or to produce, you know, produce that kind of a, you know, product for use in medical environments or other things. So there's, there's going to be a trade-off, even if you look at, if you're trying to say, we're going to be more environmentally sound by switching our whole truck fleet to electric vehicles. Well, there's a whole supply chain of electric vehicles that are that are problematic too. Those batteries and the rare earth minerals and, and all the other parts that you have to, to mine um, to get to an electric vehicle and the lifespan of the electric vehicle and the battery versus an internal combustion engine, all these other factors. So in a lot of ways, companies are at this disadvantage because they have to live in the real world of trade-offs and imperfection. And activists and those engaging in, in media and other folks engaging in the scrutiny can live in that theoretical world where everything should be perfect and carry no risk or impact. Right. Um, so sometimes that's why we talk about mitigation, because sometimes you you're you have to just be prepared for some of these criticisms and ready to answer them and explain them. But it really makes sense to do to operate that way and it's responsible. Yes. Yeah, so we don't live in a perfect world. Nevertheless, I'm really inspired when I hear certain companies committing to becoming carbon neutral and uh, not producing any waste. I think this is huge. If uh, if these companies really stick to it and others are forced to follow them, then it could make a real, real difference. So on another topic, and maybe this is uh, this is the wrong question. So I'm, I, I've been guilty of asking stupid questions, but are there any ethical boundaries for, for messaging on certain issues? So what is the best practice to resist pressures from clients to, to spread uh, distorted uh, misinformation or, or misleading information? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question, actually. And it's an important one. You know, our first, our, you know, our first client, one of our first clients out of the gate was a very, very large energy company that was going through a, a crisis. And there are a lot of ways to, to approach things like that. This company made the right choice with our guidance, guidance from others. They, were, they screwed up and everything that they did after the screw up was about telling the story of how they were going to make it right and they weren't going to leave that area until it was entirely fixed. And they, they were apologetic. They weren't, that wasn't trying to obfuscate. It wasn't trying to, to manipulate. It wasn't trying to convince people that what, what they were seeing wasn't real. First of all, even if you don't have a, sorry, I lost my train of thought, but you know, I think, you know, when you're thinking about whether to engage in misinformation or not, you know, companies that come to us and want to do that are coming to the wrong place. Uh, for us, it goes back to sort of our core purpose as a company. Our core purpose of the company is to leverage objective truth and facts to make the to make the case for our clients. Uh, so if you want us to obfuscate that, you've come to the wrong place, and we're not going to get along very well. And the the you know you're not going to like what we say in our reports because everything we say in our reports is, is citable, independently verifiable fact. 
<laughs> so if you don't that. have the facts on your side, you're not going to like the report you get from us. It's also, even if you, even if you don't have that moral compass as a company, the reality is it's going to get out. As we talked about earlier, somebody's going to figure out the truth. The facts are, this, is, this applies to political campaign ads too. You know, the ads that work are ads that are, that, that are based in facts and truth because voters, consumers, are the same. They they can tell when they're when the facts are backing something up and when they aren't. Um, and I think uh, a lot of times we get lost in this debate about what is misinformation, what is disinformation, stopping its spread and everything. But I think daylight is the best disinfectant. And the facts come out, and you can either get ahead of them, understand those facts and put them out in on your timeline, or they can come out on somebody else's timeline that isn't necessarily going to put you in the best light. Yes, well, I'd like to believe in what you're believing because I'm an idealist as well. And I'd like to believe that uh, really the facts uh, always uh, win in the end. Uh, what about perceptions? Is it possible, for example, to, ver- to represent different sides of a story, maybe different times, obviously, if they are sitting at the same table, you can't do that. That's an obvious conflict. But is it possible for you to, as a firm, to believe one side and then to believe the other side or to promote, help one side to get their version of the truth and another side on the same, maybe a Democratic and a, a Republican side to the same uh, similar issue? or you have to take a side? How does that work? Sure. You know, I think, you know, any good firm, you know, we do a lot of work on, uh, on for company uh, companies and industries. And often side, there's not a side, it, it, oftentimes there's not a side that's right, right? You know, if you have, you know, the banks and credit unions fighting over, you know, the size of loans that credit unions, unions can give to small business and where that limit should be versus when, it really ought to be within within a bank's realm versus a credit union. You know, nobody's right, right? There isn't like there isn't a moral truth to that issue. There's there's policy trade offs and you know a complicated set of interests. So it's not you know it, you know, you can marshal facts that that provide evidence and build a case for either side in a, in a debate like that. Or for example, we do a lot of work. We do a lot of work in the energy industry, and, and some people are surprised to learn that we work with both traditional fossil fuel uh, producers and um, power generators, as well as a lot of renewable uh, developers. And people are like, how can you be on both sides of that issue? And I said, we're on the same side. Both are trying to generate energy to power homes, businesses, and society. They just have different views on how we get there. And the reality is we probably need both of them. And so what's interesting is a lot of them are facing a lot of the same challenges in today's environment, which is, I don't care what kind of large infrastructure project you're trying to build, it's going to be challenging. There's multiple levels of permitting across multiple jurisdictions. There's a wider range of stakeholders. There's more scrutiny. It takes longer to get it built. It's much harder to get it financed. You know, you can run down this list. And that's true, whether it's a a natural gas uh, plant or a solar wind farm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely can see it. And um, there's no objective truth anyway. And I guess it's probably an internal compass that every one of your partners, executives have to follow to make sure that they are in in integrity with what, what they represent. 
this is very interesting stuff. If uh, our listeners would like to learn more, where should they go? Uh, how can they connect with you or how can they uh, learn more about your firm, Delve LLC and what you guys are doing? Yeah, so we're, you know, come to the website, delvedc.com, D-E-L-V-D-C.com. Uh, sign up for our, our email newsletter. We put out some insights on what we're seeing with trends and challenges facing companies and, and public affairs, their public affairs interests uh, every two weeks. Well, as if you're in the energy industry, we also have uh, a trends report that we put out uh, for those building energy infrastructure in, a, in another trends report uh, focused on pharmaceutical and life sciences. Uh, those are two of our big practices. I think, you know, we tend to work with, you know, big companies in these regulated environments that um, have to know how to know what's happening and how they navigate it. Okay, that's great. So uh, Delve DC is the website and uh, is it the trench report? Yeah, we, so the, our, our newsletter is called TLDR. Too long didn't read because, uh, you know, we, we read through all, the, all of what's happening and synthesize it into something that hopefully folks can, can read uh, quickly. Yeah, and it's available through the website, right? People can sign yeah, up. Yeah, you go to the website, sign up right there. If you can't find it, I'm going to fire our web designer. <laughs> all right. And you're on LinkedIn as well. So they can reach out to Jeff Berkowitz uh, as well uh, to you on, on LinkedIn. So so thank you very much for, for coming on the show, Jeff. It's been a really interesting conversation. And thanks for being uh, open and uh, vulnerable about the, the sensitive, sometimes sensitive topic. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. If, if so, Please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcast uh, or subscribe to us on YouTube. And stay tuned because next week I'm going to come with another exciting entrepreneur and uh, you can learn about the management blueprints that they use. So thanks again, Jeff, and have a great day. Mm-hmm.